Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff. I also serve as a pastor here at the Hallows Church, and I'd also like to welcome you here this morning. It's good to see you, as always, uh, especially in this way, as we're going to open our Bibles together and explore this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 12 is where we'll be spending our time. If you're not already there in your Bible, I guess you wouldn't be because I just mentioned it, but if you have your Bible with you, maybe you can head over in that direction if you'd like to track along with me. There was an old man who lived in a small village, and out of necessity, each and every day, this man would walk to a nearby stream to retrieve water in order to get him through the day. And the man had two large clay pots that he used to carry the water, and he would hang these clay pots on each end of a pole. And he would then carry that pole and these pots of water kind of balanced on his back each day as he walked from the stream back to his house. Now, one of these clay pots, it turns out, was broken. It had some cracks in it, and as a result, it leaked. And so by the time this man made it from the stream back up to his home, the cracked clay pot would always arrive only half full, whereas the other pot always delivered a full portion of water. And so what this meant is that each day, the man returned home with only one and a half pots full of water rather than two. Now, this clay pot with the cracks in it, over time, became ashamed of its own imperfections and became discouraged over being able to accomplish only half of what it had been designed to do. And then one day, when the man had made his walk down to the stream to get water, the flawed clay pot said to the man, I'm ashamed of myself, and I want to apologize to you. The man said, whatever for, what are you ashamed of? And the pot said, for all this time, I've, all that I've done is leak and let you down. I've only been able to deliver half of my load because of these cracks in my side. And so you'll never be able to get the full value from using me in your work. This man thought for a moment, and then he smiled, and he said, he said this, as we return home today, I want you to notice what is growing along the path back to the cottage. And so as they went up the hill, this flawed clay pot noticed for the very first time many very bright and very beautiful flowers growing along this path. And when they reached the house, this man said to the clay pot, he said, did you notice that the flowers grew only on your side of the path and not on the other side? He said, the reason for that is because I have always known about your flaws and I am taking advantage of them. He said, I planted a flower seed on your side of the path only. And then every day as we walk back from the stream, he said, you have watered those flowers for me. And because of that, and only because of that, he said, I've been able to enjoy for some time now at my table and in my home, colorful and very fragrant blooms and blossoms, more beautiful than I have ever seen. I've always known about your flaws, this man said and I'm taking advantage of them. As we explore this passage today in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, there's a very interesting sense in which uh, we're going to hear the Apostle Paul in this passage saying something similar about us and how God intends to use us in spite of us and in spite of our shortcomings and our flaws. Let me read this passage for you now. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 to 12. Paul says, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body of death, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now this passage here, it is about power to be sure, but it's also about weakness. And it's about how as Christians we really need to understand the interplay between the two if we ever hope to live spiritually uh, robust lives lives together uh, as followers of Jesus. And I'd like to explore this text today under three main headings, the declaration of power, the paradox of power, and the principle of power. First, the declaration of power. Paul begins here in verse 6 by talking about what you and I as Christians have received from God in the gospel. And the first thing we see here is that as Paul talks about these things, he refers back to what the Bible in the very beginning has to say about the very beginning. When Paul in verse 6 refers to God speaking and saying, "Let, let light shine out of darkness, you see, he's referring to the very beginning of everything. He's referring to the creation account of Genesis chapter 1 and what it says there. And what it says there is that in the beginning there was darkness, there was chaos, there was emptiness. And in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of uh, Genesis, we're told that God spoke into that darkness and He said, let there be light. And by His word and by His power, there was light. And that light penetrated the darkness. And God, we're told, proceeded from there to continue speaking into existence all things, everything as we know it, including man and woman in his own image. And when God was done, and when he saw all that he had created, he saw that it was good. In fact, he saw that it was very good. Now, we know, of course, things did not stay good. Things went very bad, in fact, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve decided that they knew better than God. And Paul is saying here in verse 6 that the very same power, the very same creational power that spoke light into darkness at the very beginning has come into our own lives as Christians. This very same God who spoke the cosmos into existence has come into our own lives as Christians by, by penetrating a different type of darkness, the darkness of the fallen human heart. And he did this so that you and I, by grace, through faith, could begin to see things clearly. So that you and I could begin to see and to savor and to celebrate the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
in the first instance, God's power was leveraged to initiate creation itself as we know it. In the second instance, God's power has been leveraged in and through Jesus to initiate a new creation in our hearts and in our minds. In a world where darkness at times seems to have the upper hand, Paul is reminding us here that the only, only the power of God could ever have broken through the darkness of our hearts to reach us and to redeem us. And that's exactly what he has done in the gospel. And it's a truly incredible and a very beautiful truth to consider. But Paul is going to teach us here in this passage that we need to be thinking rightly about God and about his power at work in our lives because it's not necessarily automatic. And so we need to understand what God says about this and how this works and and what we are to be looking for in this regard. And one of the main reasons this can be such a challenge, I think, is that the way the world sees power and the way the gospel sees power could not be further apart. In fact, this is one of the reasons Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians in the first place, because there were, there were many among them, you see, who were confused and concerned when they looked at Paul's life and Paul's ministry. The Corinthians looked at Paul, and from their perspective, which was, was a very much a worldly perspective, there was nothing all that remarkable about Paul. Surely, they thought, if he was really a messenger of the living God, with a message from the living God, he ought to look more important. He ought to sound more important, and surely things ought to be going more smoothly in his life. Paul talked often about God's power at work in him and through him, but here's the thing that many of the Corinthians were wondering. If God is so powerful, and he is truly with Paul and using Paul, why are there so many trials and troubles and tragedies taking place in Paul's life? Because Paul indeed faced many struggles and much suffering in his life and in his ministry. In fact, Paul knew the people of Corinth were talking about this very thing. And in this very same letter, as part of his response to them, you see, he talks about his many struggles that he endured. So he talks about the floggings and the stonings. He talks about the mobbings and the muggings and the imprisonments. He talks about the sleeplessness and the slander and the shipwrecks. Paul had suffered much in his efforts to advance the gospel. And so the Corinthians were wondering, how could God be with this man when all these terrible things kept happening to him? Surely when God is with you, he protects you from those things, doesn't he? Surely when God is with you, he will bless and prosper you, won't he? These were some of the questions being asked by the Corinthians as they looked at Paul and his life. And of course, if we're going to be honest here, at times we can't help but ask some of these same sorts of questions as we live out our own lives as well. When you go into a season of life where one thing after another, after another, keeps going wrong, and when you find that you've reached bottom and then you find out there's still lower to go, it's hard not to look at your life and and to say, this can't be right. Either God is not so good or not so powerful or else he doesn't care or else he's mad at me. But whatever the case, surely it does not seem that he is with me. Surely if God was with me, all these bad things would not be happening to me. We've all been there, I think, at some level. If you haven't, you most likely will. Because the truth is our hearts naturally move in those directions. 
and we begin to ask those questions when life comes at us in overwhelming ways. And so how do you ordinarily relate to God and respond to God when life comes at you like that? Paul's response here to all this is quite fascinating, and I hope it will help shape and inform our own responses when life comes at us in those ways and knocks us off balance or, or knocks us down entirely. Very interestingly, what we're going to hear Paul saying is that his struggles and his suffering, they are not in any way a denial of the gospel at all or a denial of God's power working in him. Rather, Paul says they are actually a confirmation of his participation in the gospel and in living out a life that is modeled after the gospel. The Corinthians saw Paul's life struggles and suffering as a very poor endorsement for Christianity. But Paul says in reply, you are missing the point entirely. And for Paul, the reason the Corinthians were missing the point entirely, the reason they were failing to see God's power at work in Paul's life and through Paul's struggles was because they were failing to grasp the full meaning of the cross and the resurrection and what that meant to them and what that meant for them in their own lives. And that's precisely one of the things Paul is going to show us here as we move into our second point, that being the paradox of gospel power, the power that comes to you and I through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is a, it's a paradoxical power in every way. In verse 6, remember Paul said that God's power, God's light has shown in our hearts. They've been gifted to you and I in the gospel. And then look at what he says in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul is going to paint for us here a very interesting picture. He uses this very interesting metaphor here. He says that as followers of Jesus, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, one thing that's quite clear here is that God is the treasure He's the light that Paul is referring to, and he's given us himself. He's given us his presence and his power by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We know that because Jesus said that, and Paul and other New Testament writers say this too. We know this as well because the Old Testament predicted it. And if God himself is the treasure, that would necessarily make us the jars of clay who carry this light, who carry this treasure. And now when Paul refers to us in this way as jars of clay, I can say with some level of certainty that he does not intend it as a compliment. You see, clay, especially back then, it was not the strongest of materials. In fact, fact clay was uh, pretty fragile. It was quite weak, quite brittle. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul does not depict himself or us as some sort of ornate or valuable vessels on our own, he does not present us as exquisitely crafted Grecian urns or as beautiful goblets with gold inlays that were quite valuable in that day. He instead compares us to ordinary and unremarkable jars made out of ordinary and unremarkable clay. Earthen vessels is what they were. And Paul tells us why he says this. He tells us why God would put his power and his presence in fragile and ordinary jars of clay such as us. In verse 7, he says, it's so that God's work in our lives might be most clearly seen. 
God fills us as weak vessels with his light and with his surpassing power so that others can't help but see the treasure and not the fragile jar, so that others might be impressed with him and not with us. And let's be clear as we talk about this, that the equation for this is not, it's not my weakness plus God's power equals my power. That's not what Paul is saying at all. God's power in our lives does not come from our pursuit of power, but from our surrender of it and from our pursuit of God himself instead. We do not become powerful in the gospel. We remain weak. We do not grow in power. We actually grow in weakness. We go from weakness to weakness so that we can remain vessels of his power who, who rightly display that power. Very interestingly, Paul says, in a sense, I am most effective when I'm least reliant on my own power. And Paul elaborates on this some at the end of this letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, verse 9, where he says that God's power is made perfect in my weakness. And because of that, Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. One of the things that Paul is saying here, I think, is that acknowledging our own weakness and having a humble acceptance of it often is the necessary precondition for God's power to be made manifest in our lives. And as we see ourselves honestly and clearly in this way, and as we look to God as our source of power rather than ourselves, we can withstand far more pressure from the outside than you might think just looking at the ordinary jar of clay from the outside. Look at the way Paul says this works in verses 8 and 9. He gives us there four parallel paradoxes that each illustrate Paul's experience of what he's talking about here. Namely, that our weakness, as we embrace it, invites God's power in. Listen to what Paul says. He says, first, we're afflicted but not crushed. One commentator paraphrased this as we are squeezed but not squashed. He says also we are perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. He says we're persecuted, but not forsaken. He says we're struck down, but not destroyed. There's a certain buoyancy to Paul's outlook here. There's a certain confidence in these words. There's a certain power flowing from this picture that Paul is painting. But i got to tell you, when I find myself in the midst of an overwhelming season or situation in my life, I don't always feel so confident or buoyant at all. As we talked about earlier, it can be quite easy for our hearts to begin to wonder and to begin to wander when things get hard. And we begin to ask questions of God and about God. But as I studied this text this week, I actually found something quite encouraging to me in this regard. Now, these words in verses 8 and 9, they sound uh, kind of triumphant. They sound confident. Sounds like nothing could really get Paul down. But if we look back at chapter 1 of the same letter to the churches in Corinth, Paul says something interesting there about his last great episode of struggle and suffering that took place while he was traveling through Asia. Now, we don't know exactly what went down there, but listen to what he says about this experience. He says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired. We despaired of life itself. 
Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That's coming from chapter 1, verses 8 and 9 of this same letter. In the present passage, in chapter 4, he says, we're under pressure, we're afflicted in every way, but he says, we are not driven to despair. But when we read chapter 1, he says that things were so bad in Asia that we despaired. Here, he says, I don't despair, and there, he says, I despaired. And so which is it? Is Paul contradicting himself here? One commentator said this is not a contradiction at all as much as it's, as it's psychological realism. You see, when, what seems to be going on here is that when you're actually going through significant suffering in your life, you do feel like you're truly being crushed and afflicted. You do feel truly like you're in despair. But when we get to chapter 4 here, you see Paul is using the benefit of hindsight and perspective to say that even though it felt at the time like he was being destroyed, and even though he did despair in that situation, he also says he can look back after the fact and see that God was sustaining him through it all. When you're going through it, you may feel crushed, you may feel abandoned, you may feel destroyed, but Paul says you are not. Paul is reminding us here to keep perspective. He's reminding us that whatever pressure is applied from the outside, whatever trouble you may be going through today, and however much it may feel like that pressure is getting the better of you, you can trust that that pressure will be met in every way with God's sustaining power pushing back from within. Paul did not reach down deep and suck it up and become a man of strength and courage on his own. It was never his strength at all. Rather, Paul's weakness in the midst of his struggles and his humble recognition of that weakness would most often become the occasion for God's power to be at work in his heart and in his life, even if Paul was not always feeling it at the time. That's what Paul seems to be saying here. Now, our third and final point has to do with the principle of power, the principle of gospel power. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says something that sounds a bit puzzling. He says, we are being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus and the power of Jesus might be made manifest in our lives to us and to those around us. And then in verse 12, Paul concludes this passage with a rather unexpected twist. You see, based on the things Paul has been saying, we might expect him to say in verse 12 that, that death is at work in us, but at the same time, life is also at work in us. But that's not what Paul says. Somewhat surprisingly, Paul says that death is at work in me, but life is at work in you. Death is at work in me, and as a result, life is at work in you. And this is very important for us. Because there's a sense in which what Paul is giving us here is the very principle of the cross itself. Christ giving himself for the benefit of others. Death leading to life. I think Paul would say that's where the power of the gospel resides. That's how we need to model our lives. That's how the life of Jesus and the power of God will be made visible in us to those around us by dying to ourselves for the benefit of those around us. And Paul certainly sets the pace for us in that. Paul was repeatedly giving over his own life. He was always forfeiting his own life and his own interests for the sake and for the benefit of others. 
He was continually and repeatedly giving up himself and giving over his life so that others might flourish and and find life. That, friends, is one of the most important ways that we can put the power of God and the power of the gospel on display to a watching world by continually dying to ourselves, by dying to our self-centeredness, by dying to our pride and our arrogance and our fear, and by serving others rather than selfishly serving ourselves. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 39, Jesus says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's saying you need to lose yourself in order to find yourself. Now, I spent my whole life trying to find myself. I couldn't ever really get there on my own, but I tried. I tried really, really hard, but I could not find myself by serving myself and by serving my own agenda. I could not find myself by pouring myself out into my coursework or my career. I could not get there by concerning myself with success or power or pleasure. I tried, for a long time I tried, but I was looking in the wrong places and in the wrong ways. I was searching for myself when what I needed more than anything else was to to lose myself and to die to myself. Jesus says, instead of trying to find yourself by focusing on yourself, you need to really get outside yourself and and get over yourself. And you need to instead try to find and focus on other selves. That's fundamentally how you and I live a life modeled after the gospel and a life that displays the power of the gospel by forfeiting our own lives and our own self-interest in order that others may have life and flourish in those lives. Fundamentally, that's how you and I can show a watching world that the power at work in us belongs to God and, and not to us. And so as you and I put others first, as we count others more significant than ourselves, do you know that we're displaying to the world a power that does not belong to us? As we love our neighbors well and as we love our neighbors as ourselves, we are showing to the world a power that does not originate with us. As you and I respond with grace and forgiveness towards others, even when we may feel slighted or wronged by them, we are showing the world a power that is not our own. Do you know, friends, that as you and I face our futures and even our deaths with hope, rather than fear, we are putting on display the power of God, the power of His gospel at work in our hearts and at work in our lives. These things are not our own doing, and so as they are happening in our lives, let's give credit where credit is due. Let's give glory where glory is due. The surpassing power at work in us as we live selfless and sacrificial and other-oriented lives belongs entirely to Him and not to us. And do you know another way that you and I can put God's goodness and God's power on display in our lives? By being real, by being honest with ourselves and about ourselves, by not trying to present ourselves as something we are not. Every jar of clay, every last one of us under the pressure of the various troubles and tragedies of life has suffered cracks and chips and flaws. We are all damaged. 
Every last one of us, without exception, is broken in our own way. But I think Paul is saying we need not necessarily despise or despair over those flaws because God already knows about them and He's taking advantage of them. But here's the thing, we don't always cooperate so well with this. We can, in fact, get in the way of this because at times we don't really like to seem weak, right? We don't like to seem broken and flawed. And so what happens is we often go about our lives trying to hide our weaknesses, trying to cover up and patch up all the cracks and the chips and the flaws in the fragile jar of clay. Rather than accepting and admitting our own brokenness, we instead try to cover up these things. We try to present ourselves to the world as Christians who have it all figured out, who have it all together. But I think Paul would say that if we're not careful with this, we will dampen the light that is trying to shine. I think Paul is revealing for us an important part for us to play in not presenting ourselves to others as something other than the cracked vessels that we are. Because here's the thing. Very often, it's through our honesty and our uh, humility about our brokenness and about our weakness that God's light shines through us to those around us in the most genuine of ways. And so if we think about this in this way, as Christians, the cracks and the flaws in the jars of clay, they're no longer necessarily to be uh, patched up or covered up because God can use them to His advantage. In fact, these same cracks, these same flaws, they now serve a critical purpose. If you and I are the jars of clay, then the light and the treasure within us really has no way to get out. It has no way to reach others and to penetrate the darkness around us except through the cracks and the brokenness in the jar. And so, friends, we need not cover up or clean up or patch up the cracks and the flaws in the jar and we don't need necessarily to despise them or despair over them either. Instead, we need to accept and acknowledge our own brokenness and allow God to use it as, as really the channels through which He might show Himself to others as we love and serve people in humble and helpful ways. God not only uses us in spite of our brokenness, but at times He actually shines most brightly through that brokenness as we humbly allow him to do so. And so, friends, as we engage one another, as we engage this community around us, let's take care not to present ourselves as Christians who have it all together and who have it all figured out. Let's be willing to present ourselves as the weak and fragile vessels that we are in desperate need of the glorious treasure that we carry so that the world might see that the grace and the power at work in our lives belongs entirely to God and not to us. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth and the beauty of your gospel. Thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul that you inspired for our instruction and for our good and for your glory. Would you bring these words alive in our hearts in this moment in the ways that only you can? God, would you make us a people who do not seek to gain power, but who surrender power for the sake of others, just as Jesus did for us? Would you make us a people who do not despair over our weakness, but who humbly embrace it as the very means by which you might display your goodness and your power 
through us to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.